this isn't like an indictment of science itself. Um, this is just the way humans operate. The point is to point out that people should be aware of this. This is going to be a shorter episode of Mind Matters this week. I'm Harrison Cayley, and I'm going to be reading... Well, Adam, you might say something, so I'll introduce to you, you too. <laughs> Adam Daniels is back there, manning the keyboard. I'm oh. going to be reading some uh, from a chapter in Ian McGilchrist's new book, The Matter With Things. This is... I'll show you that. This is chapter 13 called Institutional Science and Truth. And I think that listeners and viewers will be able to um, make some connections without me having to make them explicitly. I'll start by giving a short overview. He starts the chapter with two quotations, one from William James, William James and another from Robert Heinlein. William James wrote, Most human institutions, by the purely technical and professional manner in which they come to be administered, end by becoming obstacles to the very purposes which their founders had in view. Robert Heinlein says, Specialization is for insects. And in a footnote, McGilchrist gives the full quote from Heinlein. A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. So naturally, he's got a section <clears throat> on specialization and its impact on original thinking. I'm not going to focus so much on that one, except to say that, obviously, um, it's common sense, you'd think. Specialization has a deleterious effect on original thinking. And he lays out, well, he makes his case in this section. I will skip that, though, because what I want, I want, what I want to focus on are some of the things he writes later on. He's got a section on um, how reliable is scientific evidence. I'll get into that. One on preliminary remarks on neuroimaging, basically just showing that neuroimaging isn't as cut and dried as most people think, or as it is presented usually in like uh, pop psychology books when they're talking about, oh, this part of the brain does this because of this functional, um, this fMRI test or shows this or that. It's never that simple. But again, I don't want to get into that. But I will say that this chapter comes in the context of his overall hypothesis, which is that current uh, like a contemporary society is pretty much infected by a, a tendency to overuse the left hemisphere to the, um, to the exclusion of the right hemisphere. And he gets into the, the first part of the book, the first, the first part of the book, the first like 450 pages are all about the different ways in which each hemisphere sees and understands the world. It's not necessarily that they do different things, but that they have a different response to what they see and they, they operate differently. So if you wipe out your right hemisphere, you'll see the world in a particular way. And if you wipe out, wipe out your left hemisphere, you'll see it in a remarkably different way. And we'll be getting into some of those details later on, but that's not the main point of this chapter because he's trying to determine what the actual function of science is, what it can tell us about truth, how accurate is, what it can tell us and what it can't tell us. And so he's got this chapter in that context that, okay, if we're going to be looking at what science can do, how it, uh, how it can serve as a way to the truth, then what should we know about the, the limitations and the flaws of science as an institution? Because those will become relevant. So the first bit of interest I want to highlight on is in the section that follows the section on neuroimaging on replication of results. There's a lot of interesting things in there. There was a, um, a large study that was published in 2015 that he quotes that, that found that repeating experiments in psychology produced significant results in only half of cases when the combined results 
with the combined results yielding a significance rate of 68% down from 97%. So what this is basically saying is that when, when they tried to actually replicate psychology studies, the significance of the results actually went down. And this kind of study has been, uh, well, criticized, but also supported by other studies. So he quotes some more. Two of the best-known analyses from psychology and cancer biology, so not just psychology, found reproducibility rates of around 40% and 10%, respectively. So that's a reproducibility rate <clears throat> of 40% for psychology and 10% for cancer biology. So this was in response to people saying that, oh, this is a psychology problem. You know, psychology is a, is a soft science. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, you can't get reproducible results. It's all just kind of wishy-washy. Well, it, was, it actually did better than cancer biology in this, in this study. And then more broadly on the practice of reproducing other scientists' results, a survey of 1,576 researchers across scientific disciplines published in Nature revealed that more than 70% of researchers had tried and failed to, produce another, uh, to reproduce another scientist's experiments, and more than half had failed to reproduce their own experiment. In fact, more than half thought there was a significant crisis in research reproducibility, and only 3% thought there wasn't a crisis at all. Yet, 73% nonetheless went on to say that they thought at least half the papers in their field could be trusted, with physicists and chemists generally showing the most confidence. And although the vast majority of respondents had failed to reproduce an experiment, less than 20% said they had ever been contacted by another researcher um, unable to re reproduce their work. And this isn't just um, biology or psychology. It's also the so-called hard sciences. So he gives, uh, he gives a, a study on the, the measurement of the fundamental, fundamental physical constants, like the speed of light, the Planck constant, and the gravi gravitational constant. And the conclusion of this paper was that the underestimation of uncertainty in measurement of physical constants and compilations of recommended values seems to be pervasive. In other words, the, when, the, when scientists are measuring these values to try to get these physical uh, constants, which supposedly we know so well, um, they're actually not doing a very good job and they vastly underestimate the uncertainty of their own measurements. So it's not just a, not just a problem, is it? Well, it's a problem um, kind of universal to science that gets kind of lost in the lost in the haze of uh, uh in the the heady haze of the, the the greatness of science i mean like mcgilchrist would say he he adores science he is a scientist himself but we need to be aware or we should be aware of these kinds of limitations so he then goes on to the problems of publication this is where it gets really interesting for me because there are a lot of problems so, of course, probably anyone who's aware of scientific publication and just the academic life knows about uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of cliche, publish or perish. So if you want to be a success, you have to publish papers. Sometimes, you know, often if you want to graduate, you have to publish papers. Part of, part of your PhD defense um, will be to have published a certain number of papers in a certain field. Um, it's different for different fields. But just like specialization, this can... Uh, this can have negative effects. So there's also, well, there's the, so there's the, he talks about the pressure to publish. That's the, the context of this, this next finding. So the pressure to publish also skews science badly. Positive findings are considered more prestigious than negative ones, which are, however, equally valuable and equally significant. It is much harder to get negative outcomes such as finding that a medical intervention does not work, published, unless it is a non-mainstream intervention. Richard Smith, former editor of the BMJ, claims that as a result, it is, quote, clear that authors often do not even bother to write up such studies. This matters because it biases the information base of medicine, end quote. In 1998, a review of trials published in England found that only one in four did not give positive results. More troublingly, not a single trial published in China or Russia and across the former USSR found a test treatment to be ineffective. So just think about that for a sec. Imagine of all the papers that are published on medical interventions, 
not finding one or not publishing one that shows a negative outcome. Everything happens to work. Well, why would that be? Well, well, maybe it's something to think about. <laughs> and in like in Western, um, probably English speaking, the, the, the number was one in four. So just on the face of it, you know, the bullshit detector should be going off because like out of all the possible medical interventions, you'd think that the vast majority won't be or won't work. Well, maybe not because there, there might be a selection process before you actually do the test, but it still seems kind of odd that, that one in four don't work. And, well, three out of four do work. So you've got pretty good chances that uh, if you're making a new drug that you're going to find that it works. And of course, we can, uh, we can hypothesize, and he'll get into it, why it does often work. Um, well, it turns out it probably doesn't work, but we'll get there. And there's this, uh, this thing called the impact factor. So another pressure on scientists to, uh, to be trendy, essentially, because there's an impact factor. You want to publish, you, ideally you want to publish in a big, in a big paper. You want your, your paper to be um, cited by a whole bunch of people. And it doesn't matter necessarily if the paper is right or wrong, if the results are, are good or bad. Um, you just want to get published. So there is an incentive for publishers, for academic publishers, to, to get that hot item paper to be published because that raises their IF, their impact factor. And the paper can be retracted later on. It doesn't matter because it's already been cited and it's already got them, um, you know, their, their score. So, but there's all kinds of little interesting things like the... Okay, I'll read this paragraph. Being but being cited doesn't mean being read. The pressure to produce paper after paper means that other papers are often cited without the citation even being verified, never mind the paper, or even the abstract read. Occasionally, as I have discovered after looking it up, the main finding of a cited paper was the precise opposite of the one it had been repeatedly uh, of the one it has been repeatedly cited in the literature as offering. Peter Lawrence estimates that of the 48 citations of one of his papers, only eight were appropriate, 37 being irrelevant, and three plain wrong. It is estimated that only 20% of cited papers have actually been read, where the word read means, at the very least, consul cons consulted a trusted source, example, the original paper, or heavily used and authenticated databases in putting together the citation list. So... Only 20% of cited papers have actually been read, and by read, they mean consulted, which means you could read the abstract, you could go through and read a sentence here and there, and then just cite that. And then he, he adds, for the record, I did read the paper. Um, I even went so far in my preferred method as to read it in the more conventional sense, <laughs> though I cannot claim to have understood all the statistical formulae. Now... <laughs> he gives a funny example. And sometimes it's not even a matter of, la of laziness, more like desperation. With disarming honesty, one of the authors of a paper on melanism in fish included the remark, should we cite that crappy Gabor paper here? A comment which slipped undetected into the published article. <laughs> so that leads to the, to the phenomenon of academic hoaxes. So this one guy, uh, Peter Vamplu, an Australian computer scientist, he kept getting these emails from this publisher, uh, the, um, the International Journal of Advanced Computer Technology, like soliciting him to, to write papers for the journal. And he got a little pissed off, so he, he submitted a paper to them entitled, Get Me Off Your Fucking Mail List, consisting simply of the seven words of the title repeated over and over for several pages, nothing else. And he had a helpful diagram of flowchart that said, get me <laughs> off your fucking mailing list. And weeks later, he got accepted. <laughs> they accepted his paper. And uh, they were only asking that, uh, that he would be required to pay a $150 fee to have the paper published, uh, but he declined. Um, th they told me, to add some more recent references and do a bit of reformatting. So this is a phenomenon for, there's, there's a lot of publishers like this that are essentially pay to be published. Um, it's like kind of like a, 
an open source, a lot of them are open source, uh, what, is that what it's called? But uh, open journals, so they're free. Um, you know, a lot of preprints are like that. You've got, uh, well, there's several. But th it's just rife with fraud um, because these people, all they're interested in is getting, is having people pay them to publish their articles. So they'll publish anything. And they'll, they'll even offer services like proofreading or peer review, but then oftentimes they don't even do that. They just take the money, pr pretend that it's been done, and then just publish it as is, which is kind of what these people were doing. Um, because obviously they didn't read the abstract, they didn't read the article. They're just like, okay, here's someone that here's some free money for us, essentially. We'll just he can pay and we can publish his his articles saying, get me off your fucking mailing list. So there's that. Moving on. Well, other ho hoaxes, of course, there's the Sokol hoax, um, the, you know, James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian and, and uh, Helen Pluckrose, the grievance studies affair with uh, articles on the conceptual penis and, uh, and rape culture among dog walking uh, in dog parks and other classics such as that, that, uh, you know, get published. He has, he's got a, an appendix on more hoaxes. And then there's peer review. This was the most interesting for me, one of the most interesting, because it turns out that peer review doesn't actually work and there's no justification for actually doing peer review. So the, some, some scientists got the idea, okay, well, why don't we actually do a scientific study of peer review and see what happens? And they found out that it's actually just a whole bunch of bullshit um, because, I mean, the idea makes sense. You want a uh, uh, essentially a jury of your peers to check your article to, 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 to see if it's, if it works to point out errors and, um, and to make it better. And in theory, that sounds like it'd be great, but it actually just doesn't work. So they've done tests where they, they'll like, they'll insert, insert deliberate errors, for instance, into a paper and then submit it to be peer reviewed. And the, the, the reviewers will either find none of the errors, find a couple of them, none of them find all of them. And it's essentially like the way scientific publishing used to be, it used to be the editor of the journal would choose what to be published and would edit your, your piece. And that's who you'd, you would deal with. It, it wasn't this uh, kind of um, this whole regimented process where they find however many review, anonymous reviewers or named reviewers and go through this whole thing. That actually turns out to just be a waste of time. The reviewers um, won't even necessarily find all of the major problems with your papers. Some some, the editor would probably do a better job. The editor would probably do a better job finding papers that would be high impact because with one person looking for interesting things, he's going to have a, um, not only an incentive to publish interesting things, but he's going to have some skin in the game, he or she, that uh, if you end up publishing a whole bunch of bad papers that you haven't vetted properly, no one's going to want to read your journal. And they're going to go elsewhere. And the, the people writing the papers are going to go elsewhere, the, the, the high-impact writers. So he's actually got a, a, little, um, a little paragraph here kind of defending a, like, just the idea of a new, a new way of, of, well, basically going back to the old way of publishing. Because not only, do, not only is it ineffective peer review and that there's, there's no evidence to suggest it actually does what it's supposed to do. Well, it also is a, it's a big waste of time. So all these reviewers, they're getting all these articles to, to review and they don't have time to, to go through it really well. So oftentimes they'll just, you know, skim through it and say, oh, it looks good to me. Um, but well, as one systematic review of all available evidence on peer review concluded, the practice of peer review is based on faith in its effects rather than on facts. Peer review, according to another author, or is this, yeah, another, another set of authors, is a flawed process full of easily identified defects with little ev evidence that it works. Nevertheless, scientists and editors have a continuing belief in peer review. How odd that science should be rooted in belief. So uh, early attempts at a form of peer review in the 19th century already found that referees were soon overwhelmed, that the problem of bias was intractable, and that it had become an obstacle to scientific progress because it made it almost impossible to say something not already accepted by the establishment. This is another problem is that you're going to be coming up against people who will just reject your ideas because they don't come conform to what these, what the reviewers actually believe. And oftentimes you'll be, if you're submitting to, uh, to some of your peers, 
theoretically in the same field, you know, maybe in the same micro field that you're operating in, you're submitting them to your competitors. And so he cites through some examples of competitors who would reject a paper and then steal some paragraphs from that and write their own paper and submit it to another journal. And one person only got caught because the person he sent it to, or the, the, the paper he sent it to, one of the reviewers was the like supervisor for the person that had written the first paper. So in that case, I guess a success for peer review just by sheer coincidence. More, uh, so he's got more on peer review. Um, let's see. Okay, I'll move. Oh, lots on peer review. Oh, yeah. Okay, now this is the thing. So some of these researchers who are studying peer review and publishing, trying to publish their results, well, how do you think their, their papers did in peer review? Well, Sacy and Peters were one group. How, where should I start here? Okay, well, I'll just, I'll just read the whole page because it's good. Since uh, by 1982, the correlation between dollars granted to institutions and the number of biomedical publications was already 95%, it is higher today, the corrupt process has a serious impact on research. Um, funding, funding which is so crucial, this is a quote, funding which is so crucial for various types of research is available only in greatly reduced amounts to individuals at low status institutions. In the long run, these individuals end up uh, teaching heavier loads and having less graduate and undergraduate support to aid them in their research interests. These data, however, provide absolutely no support for the belief that federal tax dollars are best spent by awarding grants to researchers at the largest and most pre prestigious universities. So this is actually, it wasn't about um, peer review, uh, what I said just previously, but it's, the, it's a similar dynamic. So for saying this, the researchers could not go unpublished, unpunished. <laughs> Freudian slip there. Upon collection of the data, we entered a period lasting approximately two years, during which we experienced an intense and negative reaction from many powerful individuals in our profession for having conducted our study. One editor in the study wrote a letter threatening a lawsuit. Other negative repercussions included several threats to, prof to professionally censure us and threats to reject the work of our colleagues, supposedly because they had been part of a department that had approved such eth ethically bankrupt research. Obviously, they continue, the journal review system has become a sacred cow to some. They go on to, they go on to describe how things unfolded. These personal attacks took their toll. Finally, after two unsuccessful attempts to, to publish our findings, replete with personal, personally insulting ad hominem, ad hominem reviews, we found a publisher and positive reviews. Soon, press releases were telling a diverse audience about our findings. Letters of support, over a thousand, came pouring in. Every one of them was complimentary. So it turns out that people actually want to read this kind of stuff. So same di So that's kind of proving the point that uh, when researchers do this kind of study to to point out the either just either the corruption or just the ineffectiveness and the unscientific nature of something like peer review or like these guys were doing I think like on on the nature of grant funding, then you're going to run up to opposition from the people whose careers depend on it, and these are the people that you're sending your papers to to be reviewed. So. Um, McGilchrist adds his own commentary. Um, Cece, I don't know how to pronounce the name, and Peters, the authors of this paper that I just quoted, were effectively whistleblowers. It is worthy of note that those who act in defense of the proper principles of science are attacked by the corporate science establishment for being traitors. The only traitors here are those who are not faithful to science herself, their accusers. This kind of angry projection of your own failings onto others is almost always to be found when corporate employees blow the whistle. And corporate employees, that's a good name for these types of scientists. It's kind of amazing uh, <laughs> laying it out there like that, where when, when you just like... When you lay when you lay bare all of the all of the problems and issues, uh, it creates not a very pretty picture, mm -mm. and and it makes sense 
that that's the way that these things go because scientists are just people mm-hmm. and they're uh they're oftentimes very uh left-brained people mm-hmm. yep uh who are very rigid in their thinking and so just like on the face of that kind of idea where you're trying to publish if you're trying to publish something that is radically uh different uh, true though it may be, uh, if it is a of a different paradigm or a different context than what has been established as the uh, as the already established truth, you're going to run into problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just like you know the basic understanding of, of of human nature. Yeah, and and then to the other point of, of that aspect, which is uh, like you were saying, this is you're going against people whose livelihood depends on the farce being perpetuated. Like these are, mm-hmm. these are people who, who not only uh, represent, you know, well-respected journals, mm-hmm. but then who have uh, speaking engagements mm-hmm. uh, with various, you know, companies or, well, that's one aspect or, or one thing that could happen is, you know, then you become like a, uh, not not a spokesman or a representative, but like a, a colleague or uh, on the payroll of a, of a company who's trying to use your research for some kind of, you know, business making or money making venture or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then there's also like the policy making aspect of it where now people are looking to you in order to make some kind of policy about, you know, whether or not this uh, chemical mm-hmm. should or should not be banned or whether this one should or should not be mm-hmm. uh, mandated. Like those those kinds of like ego stroking uh, okay. positions mm-hmm. that come up in a bureaucracy of the managerial class. Mm-hmm. These are, uh, you know, th- those are very cushy positions and, and yeah. anything that comes up to, to uh, unsettle that very comfortable position obviously gets reacted to negatively by the people in those very cushy positions. It Mm -hmm. just, you know, all of that makes sense from the fact that, you know, you're dealing with people, people are tend to have a tendency to be lazy, Mm -hmm. short-sighted, unprincipled. Mm -hmm. um, And, and all of these other things is like, well, it's no wonder that, uh, uh, that that is the way that it is, but it is striking compared to the idea or the, um, uh, the picture that's put out there or presented, like you, when you're brought up in school, you're you're taught that uh, you know all of these things, peer review, uh, scientific literature, uh, repeatability. These are all you know great and wonderful things that are perfect, and everything functions as it should, uh, and that's why we're all so great um, and wonderful is because of how great and wonderful we are and how great and wonderful the scientists that we look up to are. Uh, and it's all just a, a bunch of, of hokey baloney. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of his main points is that, well, I think one of his main points is that kind of like you said, this is, this isn't like an indictment of science itself. Um, this is just the way humans operate. The point is to point out that people should be aware of this. You know, people should be aware that when they, when they either, well, not to fall into either extreme, because like reading, reading these kinds of art, these kinds of articles, when they come out, some people will be totally disillusioned with science at like in toto and, and reject anything that any science scientist says, because, because of the totally overblown, um, like sense of certainty that some science, a lot of science is presented with. And that's the other extreme not to fall into is the belief that science is this um, this godlike structure that's never wrong that that uh, that dispenses with only you know totally true uh, totally true information that's been verified by you know by by peer review by God himself yes and uh, there, um, well there was one other thing um, before I before I get to some more on that, I want to read a couple paragraphs. There was something else. Yeah, so this is about fraud, what he calls more scientific misdemeanors. Because he says there aren't, you know, there aren't, there, relatively, there aren't that many examples 
like published examples or public examples of identifiable fraud, like actual fraud. And he, he quotes some of them, but it's not a huge phenomenon, at least not in the sense that, uh, or at, it could be that we just don't have very good reporting on it. We haven't caught a lot of the fraudsters, right? So we have no idea how big the problem actually is, but from from the, the available evidence, there's not a, a whole lot of identifiable fraud, but there's a lot of what he calls misdemeanors. So he gives some ex examples like this because, and this comes back to, again, um, partially the, the uh, publish or perish thing is that there are all of these incentives to get published and to publish positive results, right? So in that context, he writes, publication in a learned journal brings a huge temptation. Those who have published breakthrough results in prestigious journals get offered extremely attractive packages at major universities. This process has cut a swathe through scientific thinking like a forest fire, turning our thoughts and efforts away from scientific problems and solutions and towards a pr the process of submission, reviewing, and publication. That's a quote from uh, Lawrence. In order to achieve this desirable outcome, researchers may keep analyzing the results in slightly different ways, known as data mining, until they get a significant p-value, a measure of statistical significance conventionally less than 0.05. I think it's also called p-hacking. Um, this makes one's research more likely to be published. So basically you do your study, you do your analysis on it, you don't find a result. So you just keep, keep like um, shifting the data around and testing it in different ways until you find a result that works. You know that that has st statistical significance. So, um, a, a misdemeanor, is, as uh, McElchris calls it. So, in a survey of three thousand two hundred scientists, thirty-three percent said that they engage, had engaged in at least one of the ten most commonly researched uh, research misdemeanors during the previous three years. Since the finding is based on a questionnaire survey with a response rate of about forty-five percent. The figure may be a serious underestimate, since more corrupt scientists are less likely to participate in a survey of this kind. Another study, which involved inducements to be honest, found that even raw self-admission rates, that is, frank admissions of guilt, were surprisingly high, and for certain practices, the inferred actual estimates approached 100%, which suggests that these practices may constitute the de facto scientific norm. And one last quote uh, statistic on this subject, turning to recognizable fraud. In 2012, the BMJ reported that a survey of more than 2,700 researchers showed that, quote, one in seven UK-based scientists or doctors has witnessed colleagues intentionally altering or fabricating data during their research for the purposes of publication. 13% of these researchers admitted knowledge of colleagues inappropriately adjusting, excluding, altering, or fabricating data for the purposes for the purpose of publication. The BMJ has been told of junior academics being advised to keep concerns to themselves to protect their careers, being bullied into not publishing their findings, or having their con contracts terminated when they spoke out. So a bit of how the sausage is made. Now... These quotes um, on the more general point, uh, this is how he concludes this section. He writes, <clears throat> Serious scientists and science publishers are rightly concerned by the difficulty of in policing a rapidly changing market in which trust has to an extent broken down, and in which pressures to succeed and inducements to distort truth or commit fraud are large. It is true that reports of gross fraud are not common, given the vast number of articles published annually, but its full extent is clearly not known. We only hear about the cases that are exposed, and exposing deceit is hard compared with its commission. The well-worn response that the problems are small and that being concerned about them is an attack on science simply won't do anymore. Yet, naturally, one continues to hear it. An example is the contribution to the Oxford Handbook of the Science of Science Communication by Joseph Hilgard and Kathleen Hall Jameson, in which the media are blamed for an attack on science in reporting publishing, in reporting publishing scandals, and in which the authors recommend in future that such news be projected as examples of the success of science, supposedly succeeding in correcting itself. Nowhere in their piece is the true extent of the problem acknowledged or genuine concern about it expressed. 
Instead, it is, is, it is assumed to be a largely manufactured problem, rooted in prejudice. Instead of some serious soul-searching, we find only the usual symptoms of a failing establishment, defensiveness and complacency. Meanwhile, those who defend science from bad scientists are, of course, to be treated as traitors. And the final section I want to read and comment on is on public, uh, public health policy. Now, again, I'll let viewers make their own connections. But on public health policy, um, well, he starts out by saying, um, okay, finally here, let me briefly address a slightly different question. How reliable is public health policy advice on how to lead healthy lives? Um, I'll skip a bit. He's, he then writes, I cannot report good news. Much of what is promulgated has little or in some cases no basis in evidence. I'll give some examples. Overall, we see in public health advice the hallmarks of the left hemisphere mindset at work. The triumph of theory over fact. Denial when evidence does not fit what one already just knows to be the cause. The case. A refusal to see health in the round disregard of context, cut and dried positions, and an obvious desire to control. Since science is actually arrived or is actually carried out by real people with all their complicated motivations, it is subject to all those human fallib fallibilities, hardly peculiar to science, but from which science is not exempt. It would be kind but wrong to assume that no axes are being ground and there's no boss to please, no prestigious grant to, just, to justify, no publication dependent on the outcome, and no previous published, previously published views to vindicate. The fiercely competitive empires of ambitious academics involve huge grants on which they, their acolytes, and often whole universities depend for prestige and income. Only a very brave or foolish person will sacrifice a lucrative career by saying something unorthodox merely for the sake of scientific progress. Such human corruption has nothing to do with the hemisphere hypothesis, but narrowness of vision, lack of creativity and imagination, excessive confidence in one's position, and a tendency to get fixed in set ways of thinking potentially do, along with anger and denial when challenged. So on public health policies, he, uh, policy, he's got an appendix because he wants to deal here. He deals with it at, at some length. Um, it's kind of an uh, aside. And one of the examples he gives, okay, well, first he talks about this thing that he calls white hat bias. And this is the tendency among professionals to uh, distort information for what is perceived as righteous ends. And that will include, he, he'll give some examples, but that will include such things of where the, the person engaging in this white hat bias, you know, the, the noble lie, um, does so in, in a scientific context because they already just know what the answer is. So, well, we just know that this is the case. So we can ignore that bit of data. We won't publicize that bit of data. Well, we'll amplify this bit of data or we'll exaggerate it because we all know that this is just the way things work. So it's in the people in the people's best interest that we that we just tell them what they need to hear, not necessarily what the actual facts are, but you know what 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 we already know and therefore what they need to hear. So it's a just a um, just such a slimy uh, well <laughs> a slimy tendency, a, a slimy in practice to engage in, but happens all the time. And he gives a couple examples. One on um, the, the advice, the low fat advice, you know, for years we were told to, to eat low fat and to avoid fats. And it turns out that, oh, it's actually wrong. And he points out that, um, he's no, he's no expert, but it really does look like it was the sugar industry that basically said, we want a study that shows that it's not sugar. That's the problem. It's uh, it's fat. That's the problem. And, uh, therefore people will just be eating our product and we'll make a whole bunch of money. But, uh, uh, but yeah, <laughs> as an interesting anecdote to throw in there, um, I knew someone who was going through med school mm -hmm. and this person and I were talking about the, uh, the low fat diet and how, uh, misguided it was and how it's not up to date with, you know, what has come out about 
how saturated fat wasn't wasn't the big evil uh, that was claimed that it was claimed to be. Um, and this person, you know, was in med school, went to one of their lectures, and this was one of the lectures talking about uh, saturated fat and heart disease mm-hmm. and yada yada. Mm-hmm. Um, well, after the class, this friend of mine goes up to the professor and says, uh, "You know, that's not right, right?" Like this is this is old and outdated, mm-hmm. and uh, the professor the professor apparently said, "Oh yeah, I just haven't gotten around to changing the slides." <laughs> and uh, thus, the lies have been perpetuated. At least he didn't say, "But it says there, right on the page, it <laughs> yeah. must be true." <laughs> so he gives that example, but then he's got an interesting example I had not, I was not familiar with, and that was that has to do with alcohol. Now, I wasn't familiar with these findings, but they are very interesting. Oh, he also talks about salt. Before we get into alcohol, he talks about the uh, sodium and low salt and just how absolutely bonkers the idea of you know lowering salt is. There is no scientific evidence. I mean, there is some scientific evidence that you have way too much salt. Of course, you're going to have a problem. But of course, if you don't eat any salt, you're going to die. Um, what does he have to say about that? Um, but on the contrary, low salt consumption predicted a higher cardiovascular mortality in this one study. Just as one little bit, he says more, more through it. But I mean, it just, it, it gets to the point of just completely ignoring just simple common sense. You know, as he points out, we have taste for a reason. Um, and your body will tell you when you've had too much salt because you'll be like, oh my God, I cannot eat any more salt. And there, there was this one study by James... I want to try to pronounce this. James Nicolant, Nicolantonio, Nicolantonio, a cardiovascular research scientist, editor of BMJ, associated editor of BMJ Open Heart. And he did a he did this study that points that points out that contemporary levels of salt consumption are at a historic low. And the consumption of salt in periods for which we have estimates, Roman times and during the last several hundred years throughout Europe. Um, was probably at least twice and even up to 10 times what it is today, since it was a principal means of preserving food in an era before freezers. And yet hypertension is, you know, on the rise. Basically, there's no correlation between hypertension and salt intake. Um, It was just bogus from the beginning. But then on to alcohol. So you have all of these um, public health initiatives for, um, well, to get people to stop drinking, essentially. So you've got taxes, for instance, to make it prohibitively high to discourage people from drinking. And then you've got public health pronouncements like, oh, even one drink. He quotes this one um, British like politician, you know, medical politician, basically saying, oh, yeah. So <laughs> in February 2016, The Times reported Britain's then chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davis, as saying that a single drink is one too many advising that consumers should think of cancer every time they held a glass of wine or poured a can of beer. He adds, McGillchrist, this bizarre pronouncement has done little to improve the credibility of public science. Because as he shows, there's, abs- there's actually no science that alcohol, that drinking alcohol at moderate or even high levels has anything to do with uh, cancer, with heart attacks, with any kind of these diseases. And then he qu- quotes the actual studies and says, like, okay, well, what do the actual studies show? Well, all of the, all of the best studies that, that follow individuals like uh, over a period of time, so long-term studies um, that deal with all-cause mortality, that, uh, that are actually granulated enough that you can see what's going on, all of those types of studies looking at alcohol use or consumption show that it's actually the drinkers who live the longest and who have the least amount of disease. And n- never are those results actually highlighted or, or um, brought attention to in any way, even sometimes in the abstracts of these papers. I mean, it's, the, it's usually like the, <laughs> sometimes the, well, let me, I'll, I'll read some of these results um, because I found them to be quite <laughs> interesting. Okay. So another candidate, uh, okay, so one, one disease, they look at ca- cancer, cardiovascular disease, you know, no association. Another candidate might have been diabetes. 
However, a huge follow-up study from Denmark, looking at over 77,000 people over a period of five years, confirmed previous extensive evidence of the protective effect of alcohol, demonstrating that no level of drinking included in their study, their cutoff was 40 units a week for men and 28 for women, was associated with as high a risk as not drinking at all. In, in other words, not drinking at all had a higher risk than any level of actually drinking. The maximum benefit was associated with drinking 14 units a week in men, 9 units a week in women, associated with a very large reduction in risk, 40% in men and 60% in women. So he adds, at no level did the risk return to, still less exceed, the level of risk associated with not drinking. This did not, as far as I am aware, get much coverage. I imagine this has to do with the white hat syndrome. Everyone just knows that alcohol can only cause harm. So then he looks at the mortality studies. And, well, to summarize, well, as I kind of said, the, oftentimes it's the moderate drinkers who are, like, the, the most healthy and live the longest, in, in, um, in wealthy nations, at least. Mm-hmm. And so he points out that, you know, he's not advocating that people just all, all of a sudden start drinking. He points out that he, you know, as a psychiatrist, he's dealt with a lot of alcoholics and, you know, alcohol, alcoholism causes huge problems. But that's not the issue here. The issue is public health and whether people should be being told that even one drink is going to ruin your life, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so on that subject, this I'll also just throw out there for people to make their own connections. I'll read this paragraph. How are we doing for time? Okay, we'll go a bit longer. The report, um, okay, which report is he talking about here? Um, well, some report on alcohol begins by identifying a range of conditions to which alcohol can be a contributor. Okay. This is a bad study that he's quoting that basically says, oh, alcohol causes all these diseases. So the report begins by identifying a range of conditions to which alcohol can be a contributory, contributory factor, and then estimates what that means in terms of the global contribution of alcohol to risk. It neither takes into account the benefits nor, contrary to good practice, reports absolute risks rather than relative risks, nor asks what level of risk we are willing to tolerate. This is like starting from the observation that there is a range of illness or injury to which football can contribute, ranging from joint injuries to fractures to heart attacks to head injuries, and then multiplying up by the number of people who play football worldwide. Unsurprisingly, you will discover that there is no level of football that does not carry a risk, and that its worldwide burden is significant. The implication, then, would be that the government should do everything in its power to prevent football. Such a report might state that you increase your chances of breaking a limb threefold, without telling you that your chances of breaking a limb are generally very low, about 0.5%, and that a threefold increase still means only 1.5% not a high risk, and one that many would willingly accept in order to have the pleasure of taking part in sport, in a sport. Hence the need to report absolute, not relative risks. And it doesn't tell you that football carries benefits, as even the riskier businesses of swimming, riding, and skiing do. So he then relates that to this alcohol study and says that, um, oh, another study. Another study found that the threshold for lowest risk of all-cause mortality was about 100 grams per week. Um, in other words, again, the, the best outcome was associated with drinking at least, uh, or about 100 grams of alcohol a week. I don't know why they use grams for, it's an odd measurement, but, yeah. um, but there it is. So again, he's just, he's, as he points out, he's not saying that people should be drinking, but he says in Britain, the pub, this is one of the reasons why he's saying this in Britain, the pub has for a thousand years been one of the mainstays of community life. uh, Social connectedness is for the health of a people more important than anything else. And that means for both their mental and physical health. So marked are the effects of social connectedness on health, not to mention happiness, 
without which there is little point in health, that they outstrip even those of diet, exercise, and smoking. Laws that aim to reduce risk to zero are pursued by committees whose raison d'etre is to carry on pushing until they succeed in enforcing total abstinence. It is not to be expected that they will think about the massive downside associated with trying to shield us from risk, so as, to, so as eventually to die without having lived. We should push back. Somebody memorably described life as a sexually transmitted terminal disease. Nothing in this world is safe. The art of life is balancing risk with richness. As Paracelsus said, everything is poison, only the dose makes the difference. Gives the example of water. Yes, even water can be fatal. And so can food. And... Then he talks about the ridiculousness of... <laughs> of the uh, hydration. Um, the, the whole hydration craze. Oh, you got to stay hydrated. And you've got bottled water people telling you, you've got to drink like eight by eight. Eight glass, glasses of eight ounce water of liquid per day. And again, it's like with salt. If you're thirsty, you're going to drink. You're not going to like dehydrate yourself by forgetting to drink water or forgetting to drink. And it's, it's, uh, it was a, a, um, it was a commercial push to get people to buy bottled water, to, to think that they need to hydrate. Well, people know how to be, how to hydrate. People have been on this planet for hundreds of thousands of years. They know how to drink. They know when they need water. It's called being thirsty. <laughs> so after that, he concludes this appendix in all processes, there is a balance to be struck. There is always such a thing as enough. One rarely hears, however, of an, of, an, of an administrative body concluding that it has now done enough. Once invented, it carries on pushing in the same direction, marching to the same slogan, even if the reason for adopting the slogan no longer applies. And currently, there are few mechanisms for stopping its progress. This is not just a problem of science, of course. It is a prevailing problem of modern life. So... As I said, you should be able to make some connections on your own without me having to spell them out for you. And that's all I really had to say about that. Yeah, once you have a committee that's established for whatever reason, you know, whatever size, whatever uh, group, when you set up a committee and that committee's supposed to do something to protect the people, well, it doesn't really matter what, what you're looking at. You can always find something to justify your own existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, with that, I think we're done for the day. Yeah, so just maybe re-listen to this episode and then just try applying some of those principles to what happens, what currently happens to be happening in, on the planet today. And you might come to, some light bulbs might go off if they haven't already gone off. So take care. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye.